0: This is an ABC podcast. If not at 70% and 80%, then when? Would Australia be closer to reopening if the Prime Minister had not failed his two jobs on vaccine and quarantine?
1: Unfortunately in the background, actions are still proving that they don't get it.
2: Nobody is telling us exactly what's involved in the plan. Australia seems to have left it far too late to help those who helped us. I've had a gutful. I have had an
1: absolute gutful. Welcome to The Party Room. We're back. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive, and afternoon briefing, joining you from Wurundjeri country.
2: And I'm Frank Kelly from RN Breakfast on the Gadigal land of the RRO Nation and so happy to be back. PK, we're going to be joined by David Crowe, one of our favourites here on The Party Room. He's the chief political correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. We're going to talk about the government's long and winding road to net zero emissions by 2050. This last bit proving to be a bit uphill and with quite a few bumps. But before we get to that, and since we were last partying together, PK, there have been some dramatic changes on the COVID front. Victoria, very sadly, are seeing some record-breaking daily COVID case numbers. New South Wales, four months bogged down in lockdown now open and the living experiment, really, for all states and territories on how to live alongside this virus, as the New South Wales Premier likes to say. Vaccination rates are really going like the clappers in New South Wales and special shout out to the ACT, 97% single oh, dose amazing. in the national capital. Whoa, well done, world beating. Um, and PK, the Prime Minister really jumping on these figures with an announcement of his own.
0: It is, will be time very soon that we will be able to open those international borders again and that will enable Australians who are fully vaccinated and Australians and residents of Australia who are overseas who are fully vaccinated to be able to travel again. This will happen next month. That's when it'll start happening From next month as states move into those 80% vaccination rates.
2: Next month, PK, the Prime Minister was out with that announcement before the states had even got to it. He was very quick off the blocks with it. Is, was he basically saying there, mission accomplished, look what we've done, look what we've achieved? And do you think people will buy that once our lives are all up and running again? I mean, a lot of people very happy to hear that they could soon be travelling in and out of the country again. And, and, you know, a lot of people who are overseas, very happy to hear that they'll be able to start coming back home.
1: Yeah, there's no no doubt that it's a pretty dramatic shift if you've just thought a few short months ago we'd be in this position you know, you wouldn't believe it. But let's mark the fact that we do have, I think, extraordinary vaccination rates in Australia now. And that is a credit to Australians who clearly are very pro-vax people and are happy to kind of roll up their sleeves and... Not only look after their own health, but think about the health of others all around them. We've all had to deal with very long lockdowns, well not all across the country, depends when you're listening from, but many of us, in the two big states at least, and the challenges that go with it. I think it I think it's great that we've we've kind of done this, but the federal government is clearly trying to get political capital out of this achievement, which I think is kind of galling really in many ways, Fran, given they were slow to roll it out. They did bungle it. And then the only reason we've seen uh, a dramatic escalation in vaccination rates is because of these two very big outbreaks in our big states. Uh, Yeah, it wasn't because of some genius political and policy mastery. It was actually the work of Australians pushing their governments to do better and then actually rolling up their own sleeves.
2: Yeah, and remember that we had that sort of hard scrabble from Greg Hunt and the Health Department and Foreign Affairs and Trade to sort of go around the world searching for some Pfizer doses because clearly from those large outbreaks, it was the under 40s that needed to be get vaccinated and quickly. They were the ones going in and out of work and the in and out of family homes and spreading it. Um, the government managed to do that, but as you say, under great pressure from the Australian people, I think, and also the states deserve a lot of credit, I think, for the quick rollout too, particularly New South Wales very early off the block, Gladys Berejiklian saying give us the doses and we will get them into people's arms. And there weren't enough doses to go around. We shouldn't remember that. There was just not enough to get the job done. Once there was, then, true to, true to her word, New South Wales really cranked up the um, the vaccination rollout, as has Victoria, and certainly, as we've already acknowledged, as has the ACT. But it's not a one-track story, picker. and I think we, we do need to remember this, that even though it's very exciting that, uh, you know, over 80% of the country has a single dose, 97 percent in ACT, for heaven's sake. It's not the case for all communities. Some Indigenous communities still have very, very low numbers, despite some concerted attempts to change that. Some of the regions still have low numbers. But the government you know, can boast about where we're at. They certainly are boasting about it. Um, and they can talk up these vaccination rates and they will keep doing it, I think, in the hope that people will forget about all the bungles in the rollout and Let's wait and see. I suppose the next thing to wait and see, and the government will be waiting with bated breath, I think, fingers crossed and all the rest, to see what happens to case numbers now and hospitals as the borders open. But that's that's still a story to play out. That's very
1: much a story to play out. Look at, you know, we're recording this on a Thursday morning, Victoria, you know, cracking a, a sort of um, number we didn't want to, which is going over 2,000 cases. and. Clearly, that means that that this is a long road and it's not an easy road. Obviously, vaccination is one of the ways out, but vaccination isn't the only way out, right? And we know that there's still going to be uh, deaths. We know there's going to be um, lots of challenges. I mean, we're at a stage now where, in the case of Victoria, we haven't even opened up. We've got these high case numbers and... Uh, we've got the challenges of you know opening schools and opening mm. um, those kinds of environments. Now, let's and you get not... the
2: sense it's a, bit of, it's a bit of a mystery because the vaccination rates are going in Victoria as they did in in, in Greater Sydney, but the at this stage still the infection rates are, aren't coming down. They're seesawing, um, and that <sighs> just seems to be a bit of a challenge. People don't quite understand what's Huge. going on. And and the schools point I was
1: making is like actually quite relevant because we're going to open up, for instance, primary schools which I think is a, is a great thing because kids have missed out so much, as you've mm. uh, people have heard me say before, so I'm not going to repeat myself. But many young people are going to go to school unvaccinated, so they'll be spreading the virus. Um, we know, you know, even if it's a mild illness for children, it does, prop- it does actually create lots of challenges, I think, for us as we're opening up. So back to the federal government and what happens for them and in terms of p- the political uh, sphere and how they manage this. That that is, I think, a, a disruptor for them, and and we know that this year there has been a shift to to look at the federal government for being responsible for some of these bungles rather than just the state government. Um, we know that from from the focus groups and the polling, people have been frustrated with the federal government. Election timing is going to be key. Mm. The the prime minister hopes that all will be forgiven, and people will be happy with the opening up, the international borders opening up. The fact that it is kind of a changed country uh but i don 't think um that 's necessarily you know a done deal for him. I still think there are many, many frustrations in the community, and that timing's going to be key. There are some who think he could even do it this year. Oh, I think that 's pretty unlikely now <laughs> i don't I personally am not in that in that um I don't know about you, Fran, but I'm not in that column. I no, think I... it would be too risky. Uh, but... Well, but half the country's closed down, so I'm not sure how you campaign at the moment it... in WA, for instance. Yeah, exactly. It's just it's just I can't I can't get my head around it. I don't think it's likely. But either way, he needs to go to an election early next year and say, hey, we did look at these record vaccination numbers and hope people just don't remember that the record vaccination numbers happened. Uh, despite him in some ways, <laughs> happened because there were these outbreaks and people, people actually did the work themselves. Mm. Yeah, I don't well, know if people are going to be so forgiving, Fran.
2: Well, I think that might be patchy around the country, but I think that's a perfect question to ask our guest, David Crowe, don't you? Should we bring him in? Let's bring him in. <laughs> David Crowe, Chief Political Correspondent
1: for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Welcome to the party room. Great to be back.
2: Yeah, it is great to be back. Great to have you back, David. We were just talking, Pika and I, about uh, elections because the Prime Minister has to call an election before the end of May next year uh, So mm. as restrictions start to ease around the country. How early could the PM be tempted to go, do you think? Some are still tipping this year. But is the, is the question that will determine that how soon he judges that voters might be in a mood to forget and forgive? What do you think?
0: I think that they do have to get through the memory of um, of the slow delivery of the vaccines. And I think it's, it's quite possible for the government that they'll get there, but I don't think they'll get there this year. I mean, we all know family members and so forth who are getting vaccinated finally. And so there's a sense of relief as the vaccination rates climbed at pretty good levels, higher than some thought might've been possible. But that's not this year. And I think also, look, I found it quite intriguing that, um, the Canadian experience was going to an early election didn't work with voters. Mm-hmm. I talked to a Canadian pollster who said as soon as Justin Trudeau called the early election, his ratings fell because people saw him as just another politician being opportunistic. And so I don't think that'll work for the PM. I don't see any indication that uh, Scott Morrison wants to go this year, and I I think it's uh, it's March or May next year.
1: Mm. And David. Will the pandemic be? I know this is in asking, I feel silly because I, but still, I reckon it'd be the dominant issue. (laughs) It's sort of half. Will it be the dominant issue? Because let's think about that line that Anthony Albanese has repeated so many times. You know, he had two jobs, quarantine and, you know, vaccine delivery. And now, which we'll talk about in a moment, there's other things. Ah, COP, the COP meeting and uh, Glasgow and climate change. And there's heaps of things they're doing. But is it still ultimately going to be a pandemic election?
0: I think it will be a pandemic election, but with a different focus. And I think both sides are preparing for this. When you talk to people in the business, and this is why you know the answer to your own question, PK, don't you? Because um, it won't be about the past only. People will want to be talking about the future when that election is held next year. And the government certainly sees it as being one about the economy Mm -hmm. and about rebuilding after the pandemic. And Labor will want to fight on fairness in the economy and jobs as well.
2: So that'll be um, things like, what, sovereign capacity and stuff like that, the manufacturing, the vision, if you like. Is it a vision election? Finally, a vision election.
0: Well, it's got to be because it's got to be where are the jobs after the pandemic? Where's the economic growth after the pandemic? What's the recovery plan after a shocking, well, it'll be two years by then, a shocking two years of, of pain. Um, and I don't think it can be about quarantine because I think by then will have moved to, well, look, fingers crossed, um, home quarantine and so forth. It won't be about um, where's the next um, how its Springs going to be built and mm. things like that. But it, it still will be about accountability on vaccines. I don't think that goes away as an issue. I just don't think it's the primary issue for the campaign.
2: Well, the biggest vision question of all, of course, is climate policy. And with the UN Glasgow climate talks just a couple of weeks away now, Scott Morrison really needs the support from the National Party for a revised climate action plan, including a firm commitment to reaching net zero emissions by 2050. Here's the Prime Minister.
0: The world is moving into a new energy economy. We all know that. It's now a question of how, not if. And how is how we can ensure those communities right across rural and regional Australia can look at this change and understand that there are big opportunities and there's a way through.
2: Embracing a new energy economy, he's sounding more and more like Labor leader, Anthony Albanese, he sounded a year or so ago with all this talk about the future is renewable. But David, um, Scott Morrison's really nailed his colors to that mask now. At the same time though, his energy minister, Angus Taylor, says the traditional fossil fuel industries, quote, will power on for many years. And the net zero plan wasn't about, quote, wiping out industries or regional communities. So he's trying to telegraph that message to the Nationals, particularly this week, ahead of them deciding whether they're going to endorse this plan or not. How does the Prime Minister, though, walk both sides of that particular street, or does the street become a one-lane highway once he commits to net zero by 2050? Does the fight sort of go out of this a bit?
0: I think there's still a fight over it. Um, I think that there's still a a contrast between um, the political parties on where to go. Net zero by 2050 isn't the end of the debate, because we also have an argument about what the 2030 target is, and look, there's going to be a live debate about whether net zero by 2050 is good enough at all when other countries mm. are setting targets earlier than that. So the debate never ends. I mean, it's a major policy, and it'll always emerge with new, new complexities and problems for any government. Um, but I do think that the resolution will be. Um, a modest upgrade in the government's target for 2030 that'll stop short of what the UN's calling for, which is 45% at least by Mm. 2030. Morrison can't go there. I think one of the political realities about that is that um, to accept 45% by 2030 would be to accept the very thing... That Morrison campaigned so hard against yeah. at the 2019 election, which was yeah. the Labor policy to get to 45 percent by 2030, which ironically that, is
2: no longer the Labor
0: policy. Yeah, well, they that one. You know, we have to wait on on Chris Bowen and, La- and Anthony Albanese, Albanese, don't we? Because um, that'll be something that they will then discuss, but they'll they'll keep their powder dry until mm. after the UN summit. Um, now, I don't think that. The Nats, are make, the Nats clearly aren't making it easy, but I think there's enough of them who realise that the government's got to reposition on climate. Yeah. Net zero by 2050 is the expectation. That's the thing that says to voters we take it seriously. I think one Liberal put it very well to me, I thought. It's a test. It's an integrity test. If you're serious, if you've got a solution, you commit to net zero. Others say, look, it's basically the it's the it's the ticket, it's the entry ticket, the bare minimum that gets you to the Glasgow Climate Summit. Mm. If the Prime Minister can't even commit to that... He can't go to that summit. He can't be taken seriously.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the bad seats at the back, you know, like just get in. Uh, <laughs> you're not you're not actually quite um, playing with the big guys, though, unless you go further. There are so many, David, pro-coal people in the party, but one of the most outspoken has actually been the Nationals leader, Barnaby Joyce. In fact, really, if you look at his election to or his rise to that leadership, there were many reasons and largely personality, I think, based on this idea that he was this great retail politician, um, that argument re-emerged. But David, it's ironic that the person who can actually deliver a stronger climate action plan potentially, it hasn't happened yet, but is Barnaby Joyce because he was so staunchly against net zero by 2050, kind of still is. Has he come round? And what is his price tag likely to be? How does he look like the strong man in this? Because that he's got to come out looking like he's won, right?
0: Yes. He looks like the strong man by getting a number on the package that's pretty big for the regions. I mean, there's got to be something in it for the nationals. They've got to... And that's why they're bargaining the way they are. They've got to get something out of it for their people. They know that. Scott Morrison knows it too. And so that, I think, is is where things are heading. It's almost a Nixon in China kind of dynamic. Um, the Republican had to be the one who did, who did the recognition of China in the 70s. Barnaby Joyce's tone, his rhetoric... His pro-coal arguments kind of make it, um, I don't know whether easier is quite the word, but mm. it, it creates a different dynamic if he's the one who can finally accept it. But I don't think his heart is really in it. I mean, I don't no. think anybody's pretending that he really believes that he's got to do it. I think it's a political calculation that the government has to make. And that's why ultimately, a little bit like the pivot in the News Corp tabloids this week, it's really about recognising that the mood has shifted in the electorate and nobody can ignore that forever. Sooner or later, you have to wake up to the way in which the community has changed and adapt your policies accordingly.
2: Yeah, some are still trying to at least look as though they're they're going to stand up against it. The Nats, you know, some of them still playing it for all it's worth. I think you're right there because they can see a price tag attached. I spoke to National Senate leader Bridget McKenzie on RM Breakfast this week, and she was very adamant that the Nats will not just sign up to net zero unless it's, quote, right for the region. Let's have a listen. And we've been here before, Fran. We've had all these promises before on water policy, on telecommunications, on sovereign manufacturing, on forestry. And I tell you what, the lived experience out there in the regions isn't what was promised prior to those decisions being made. She was sounding very hardline. She mm. talked about the jobs promised as being a mirage. But, you know, she would know that the Nats are likely to sign up, I think. So it's just all theatre, the Nats sort of telegraphing to the Bush and to the resources sector that they're fighting the fight?
0: Well, um, you've called me on the day I write my column and I'm (laughs) writing about the fact that so much of it is theatre because one thing Bridget McKenzie uh, didn't say was, I cannot accept net zero, I will vote against it. Um, The other thing she did is that she pretended she's not actually a member of the government. She (laughs) pretended that she's a member (laughs) of the opposition within... This is a liberal plan. Fran, Fran,
2: Fran. It's a liberal plan.
0: Yeah, exactly. She is a cabinet minister (laughs) it will be a decision that she um, is bound to support because I think it'll be a majority decision of Cabinet. It'll be a majority decision of the party room. So they're Mm. going through this... Charade is too strong a word, isn't it? Because they do have to get an outcome. There's a serious negotiation here. But there's also an element of pretense um, because they know that they have to put on the show before ultimately they accept the reality.
1: So I'm going to pivot change topic we can do it because there's another huge uh, issue that's emerged this week a week after New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian resigned over an investigation by the New South Wales ICAC Victoria's own anti-corruption watchdog has claimed its first ministerial scalp in Luke Donellan. the broad-based anti-corruption commission it's also known as IBAC is investigating allegations of branch stacking by Labor MPs and their staff this was of course exposed in the 60 minutes story Federal Federal Labor MP Anthony Byrne admitted that he and other MPs had engaged in branch stacking, which is against the party rules. David, Labor leader Anthony Albanese has refused to expel Anthony Byrne, um, but he's been, you know, and they've all been arguing every time you ask a Labor person, oh, this is before the IBAC, we
0: can't possibly comment. What are the
1: implications, though, for federal Labor?
0: The implications are that they've got to do more on cleaning up branches. They've already made a start. I mean, Anthony Albanese makes a point that they have shut down the branch, the suspect branch in question at the heart of this. And so there's an element of action that they've already taken. But if you get a federal Labor MP sitting in a hearing and admitting to branch stacking, which is what Anthony Byrne did... Spectacular, wasn't it, really? Then you've got to have further action. Um, Now, there are some people who who are supporting Anthony Byrne because he blew the whistle on other behaviour inside the branches, particularly the behaviour of Adam Somurek as a factional warlord. Now, people wanted that called out. I think in the power dynamics within the Victorian party, the aftermath of that actually helped Anthony Albanese. People know that. Um, But that doesn't mean that they can turn a blind eye to the fact that this admission has come from one of their federal MPs. He's not a frontbencher. He can't be dropped from the front bench. He can't be drummed out of parliament. Um, expelling from the party is a very severe move, and I think there's a desire to wait until further things emerge at the IBAC hearings before making any decision like that. I actually think that one of the bigger issues is not branch stacking within a party, even though that is a serious problem that's so widespread in politics. A key issue here is we've got federal people who are hiring people in their electorate offices yeah. and they're not doing work for taxpayers. It's outrageous. They're actually yeah. doing work yep. in, those, in those offices for the parties, for yep. their factions. That's corrupt, they're isn't it? They're actually paid... Yes, it's outrageous. They're paid to work for taxpayers and they're not doing that. And I think that is the bigger scandal. That's the thing that's going to be the test for Anthony Byrne Anthony Albanese for other names that come up in these hearings and also I should say that's a problem on both both sides we have seen that happen with liberals not just with labor doesn't make it right
2: no, makes it a problem for both sides. And it still makes it a problem that on the face of it looks like corruption, doesn't it? Yes. Um, these scandals uh, with in New South Wales with Gladys Berejiklian and ICAC and the Victorian uh, Labor story in IBAC have ignited, reignited calls for the federal government to get cracking on a Commonwealth Integrity Commission, which it's promised to do. Get moving on it again by the end of this year, though there's a lot of arguments about the limitations of the federal government's model. Once parliament's back next week, David, it's going to be a, a pretty full-on uh, month or two in parliament, I think, before the end of the year. But is this federal ICAC, is that going to be a, a, an issue, a pressure point for the Morrison government?
0: It will be a pressure point because voters expect better. Australians expect better of their politicians, um, uh, they're constantly disillusioned and disappointed, I've got to say, but but they do expect a level of scrutiny. And I I think a key point here is government's so much bigger now. I mean, when Ros Kelly had the whiteboard um, sports affair, it was 30 million or so. The car parking um, funding grants, it's, it's a $660 million scheme. Um, with bigger government, there's a responsibility for a bigger level of scrutiny. And I think that's where the debate about the Integrity Commission goes. Scott Morrison is just not having a bar of the idea of um, public hearings, greater autonomy for the Integrity Commission. That will be a huge sticking point. I think the climate debate's got to come first. Then we get um, the introduction of a bill that Michaelia Cash, the Attorney-General, says she's going to put to Parliament and then we get the test. And I think it's a very difficult test for the Senate because I know with independents like Rex Patrick, they're really torn because do they accept something they regard as too weak um, uh, in the hope of improving it down the track or do they just say no and and think that nothing is better than a weak watchdog? Mm.
1: It's an interesting one. I've I've put it this week on Afternoon Briefing to some of my Liberal political panellists and both Katie Allen and Dave Sharma um seem to me to be really toughening up their push for a tougher version federally particularly actually Dave Sharma saying that you know pol- the political class should also be investigated and that that you know he does think that that needs to happen and it needs to be tougher do you think there will be a push from moderates and others david to try and make it a kind of not such a toothless tiger
0: i think there are some changes that that you know seem possible maybe likely the one of the early, the early draft, the existing draft that we go by, of that integrity bill, um, sets up two different standards. Mm. There's one standard for public officials, mm. including federal police. There's a different standard for those in politics, the MPs. Now, when that emerged, the the representatives of police officers just dismissed it. They can't have two standards, one for the cops, one for the politicians. No way. So therefore, I think yeah. that's something that even the government recognises it's got to fix. Now, another issue is why can't the Integrity Commission launch its own inquiries? Why does it have to wait for a department, another agency, to refer something to it? I think that makes it subservient to those other agencies. What if what if there's a, a land deal that's a bit suspect um, and the department responsible doesn't want to refer it to mm. the Integrity Commission? Who refers it? I mean, why can't the Integrity Commission... Launch its own inquiries. I think that's another area where it's going to be untenable for the government to um, to not to not see the need for change there. Yeah,
2: and there's the a whole debate too. Public- there's a whole debate too about you know public hearings or not, yeah. when you have them and when you don't, um, and that's going to be another big thing too. But that is ahead of us. I'm sure we'll be talking about that more in the party room. David, it's always lovely to have you. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you both. Questions without notice, the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker.
1: The bells are ringing, that means it's time for question time, and this week's question comes from Carolyn, who says, I understand the US involvement
2: in the new AUKUS alliance to protect US interests in the Pacific. Why the UK, though? Why their participation? Well, that's a good question. And given most of the details of this still secret, we don't really know. But my first guess would be that the AUKUS alliance uh, is, and, and the whole effort and focus on the South, on the Pacific region, is to act as a counterweight against China's dominance, potential dominance of that region as it becomes a dominant military power. So, you know, Britain is as much invested in that as is the US. So that's part of it. They're three of the Five Eyes countries. Also, I think there will be an economic benefit if. Uh, Australia ends up building these uh, submarines, these nuclear submarines. It'll be with US and British. Technology, So there'll be a payoff there in that sense too. And in the short term, there is some talk about Australia leasing submarines in the meantime to cover the capability gap because it's going to be many, 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 many years before these new subs are built in Australia. We don't even know, you know, all those details haven't even been agreed upon yet. Um, so I think in the short term, we might be leasing some subs from Britain. But I think primarily this was a strategic Move, yes. and the strategic move is about China, and as I say, that's why Britain comes into the frame. Yeah, and and they have a lot of interest in um, in um,
1: ha- helping us in this region try to deal with the rise of China. Given really at the at the core, that's Western democracies are concerned mm. about China and the authoritarian um, rise of China and the way that may look in not only the region but in the world. Keep sending your questions in. We like them because uh, we can try and answer them as best we can. You can tweet us using the hashtag ThePartyRoom or email your questions at ThePartyRoom at abc.net.au.
2: And you can follow us, follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app or anywhere where you get your favourite podcasts. That's it for The Party Room this week. See you, PK. See you, Fran.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.